Hi, this is Bron Burton and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. Big, big welcome, but big, big salty and wet welcome to Radio Marinara. Today on the show, we have plenty of guests and plenty of information. Uh, joining me in the studio, I'm Cabin Boy, but joining me in the studio is... Is Kate Mills. How are we, Cabin Boy? Good, good, good. I always get a little excited, a little kind of with that uh, intro theme. Oh, it's the theme that a lot of families dance around the house to, and I, was, I am one of those families that dance around the house to it. Well, I was going to say, how long has Radio Marinara been going? Because my kids are, what, 23, 24, and we always <laughs> used to dance around for that. Yeah. Well, it has been going for over 20 years. Yeah, so uh, amazing. Yes. What is it? Two past nine on three triple R. Whether you're listening to us live, you're listening to us via podcast, which I know a lot of people do, or on demand. There's so many ways you can listen to not only us, but all the other amazing shows on Triple R. And big thanks to David for filling in for Tim Thorpe. Um, massive shoes to fill. He's kind of like the Atlantis holding up Triple um, R Station, who's been away for the last couple of weeks. Well, it's how we feel too, uh, taking the helm of Radio Marinara with uh, Bron missing too. It does, yeah, and send our love out to Bron. And you know she will be back on air soon for all those missing her dulcet tones promise she'll be back but we do have a big show today don't we we do um kicking off well you've got a guest coming oh on by I, phone i do well, yeah well we've got Joni penny fitzsimmons so she has been on the show before she was talking about uh, raylene the despot stingray so we're talking about <laughs> social um hierarchy within stingrays and she just recently was involved in a paper that was the first sort of paper to document stingrays making noise and we were talking in the green room it was kind of like well of course animals make noise. Why wouldn't they? And there's every chance that there's a listener sitting there at home going, yeah, I've heard them make noise. Yeah, well, it hadn't been documented in the literature until just recently. And interestingly enough, she did actually find some of that data on social media. So it's one of those things where uh, we're going to talk about what she found, what noise stingrays make, and talk about you know maybe why they make the noise as well. And then you've got a massive guest lined up. Well, yeah. Can, um, how's your French? Because mine's pretty terrible. Murder. Yeah, my wife says I have a thick tongue. Yes, yes. Which means I stumble over any word that is um, not very Aussie. Well, I mangle the English language. Yes, so, uh... <laughs> and here we are on Triple R. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, Louise Hallett's going to pop in. She's the director, producer of uh, theatre maker and artistic director of Reaction Theatre. She's got a huge uh, story, or a tale to tell, about the French frigate Medusa. And uh, there's so much to unpack there. So uh, we're going to have her in the studio to uh, tell us all about that. Yeah, and when you say French frigate Medusa, you're not talking about like something recent, are you, Cabin Boy? This is no, this is 1860, but it was an international incident, and uh, it's in pop culture too. So we're going to talk about that. Oh, fantastic! Well, looking forward to it. And then to finish up the show, unfortunately, the show doesn't go for three hours because I have a feeling we could do that today. We've got Dr. Nerida Wilson, who's a scientist over at the Western Australia Museum, who basically has scoured the globe looking for genetic material. She's a molecular ecologist or a molecular marine scientist. Um, she's been to the Antarctic. She's been on deep sea explorations. But what we're having her in to talk about is weedy sea dragons. She is one of the um, head scientists of a project called Sea Dragon Search, which I know many listeners out there have contributed their images to. And we're going to get her on to talk about you know the aims of this project and the fact that she 
plans to run it for at least 10 years. Wow. So it's unheard of in science. Like it's the most valuable data sets in science are the long-term ones. Yep. The longer you can get a data set, the more valuable and the more you understand the natural world. And so the fact that this is planned to go for at least 10 years is pretty impressive. Yeah. So, yeah, we look forward to getting her on air. So stinging, uh, singing stingrays, sea dragons and shipwrecks. We've got it all. <laughs> That's it, in true marinara style. Um, <laughs> have we got the weather there? We do. Um, it's going to be a well, 70% chance of rain today, mostly likely in the afternoon. Uh, a northerly of 25 to 40 kilometres an hour, so uh, that's probably keeping the temperature up, which will be a maximum of 15. If you're going out on the water today, 10.44 low tide at Williamstown and 5.33pm for a high tide at Williamstown also. So, yeah, probably not a bad day out in the water. Yeah, and look, I've got a couple of bits of news. I'll go with the first one. And so this one, I quite like the name of the ship. So there's a ship out there that's... Um, basically trying to map the the Challenger Deep, mm-hmm. which is the deepest part of the seabed. So the Mariana Trench, everyone yep. knows about it. The Challenger Deep is the deepest part. The ship is called Pressure Drop. <laughs> what a name. So sent down a deep sea submersible with Dr. Dawn Wright, who you can follow her on Twitter. And her Twitter handle is at Deep Sea Dawn, uh-huh. which I love, yep. to a depth of 10,919 metres. Plus or minus six metres. So there's that, an error with that, yeah. I'm getting that in my head, yeah. yeah so it's, it's almost 11 kilometres wow. under they went. Yet one of the first things they saw when they got to the seabed, what do you think it was? I reckon plastic. A beer bottle. Oh, no. Clearly <laughs> sitting on the seabed. Like, it is worth checking out. That deep sea dawn, there's some footage there and there's yeah. a photo. One of the first, they get to the deepest part of the oceans and they find a beer bottle. It wasn't product placement, No. No, if I was to guess, I could probably tell you what brand I thought yeah, it might yeah, no. be, yes, but we'll, we'll <laughs> steer clear brands. of that on there. But yeah, so that was a bit disheartening. There's also a lot of amazing stuff that they've found as well. But um, yeah, it just sort of does you know, bring home that thing that you know, what we use and where we put it is, you know, we've really got to think about it, it hard. It does have an impact. Yeah. You got any news there? Um, I don't know. I don't watch a lot of TV, the TV, but I think there's been quite a few ads for the Spirit of Tassie, the uh, ferry. Yeah. It's moving from uh, Melbourne to uh, to Geelong at on the uh, 23rd of October. So there's been a little bit of sp- dispute between the um, uh, the Melbourne kind of marine, in, the pier down there, and the fer- the ferry there. So um, they've upped uh, and gone to Geelong. Wow, it'll be so, interesting yeah. to see what happens with that pier structure that there. Yeah, well, I still think they have cruise ships down there at Station Pier oh, and all yeah, that. that makes sense. So that yeah. makes sense. But um, it's a big – well, it's not so great if you're on the east. It's pretty good if you're on the west to uh, and then jump onto the spirit of Tasmania to get down to Tassie. But uh, it's going to be a bit of an impact there, isn't it? It is, yeah. Now, I do have one more bit of news, but I think I will save it for the next time I'm in. And I'll just give a quick tease. It's about whale sharks. And, you know, whale sharks swim – Actually, let's go with it. Whale sharks swim with their mouth open, which actually requires quite a bit of energy. It's like dragging a net. And, you know, what do you think whale sharks eat, Cabin Boy? Um, the little krill, the little, yeah, plankton. They most certainly do. Do you know what they also eat? Um, humans? No. <sighs> so, so they eat seaweed. Oh, okay. They're basically are known now as the largest omnivores in the world. Okay. So because they swim around with their mouth open, they're actually 
get a, digest a whole lot of um, seaweed at the same time, and they're actually developed. Their guts can digest the seaweed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So some work was done using amino acid compound specific stable isotope analysis. Yes. And it found that it actually makes up quite a part of their diet. So they are the world's largest um, omnivores. Because you forget krill's a little creature. That's right. Yeah. You need to eat a lot of it. Yeah. So this was some work that was done. Um, Mark Meekham, who we've had on the show before from um, Australian Institute of Marine Science up in um, I think WA is the head of that, and it's a recent publish in ecology, a published publication in ecology. So I think we'll chase him up and get him on to talk more about that because that is fascinating that work. Sounds good. You are on Triple R. It is nine fifteen. The song you heard before those station announcements was Heywanaka from King Stingray, and I think you'll appreciate the fact that they're releasing an album on Friday the fifth of August, and it actually on their website you can get a note. Basically, like a note your parent used to write for you when you were <laughs> to get off school, and it's to whom it may concern. We give insert your name full permission to take the day off work studies on Friday the fifth of August to celebrate the re- release of King Stingray's self-titled debut album on streaming services. We believe it is very important that insert your name is given the opportunity to listen to our record front to back with no interruptions while doing what they love. We also strongly recommend that you too take the day off work and celebrate hashtag King Sting Day in your own way. They should have just got Bob Hawke to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and now I'm pretty sure our next guest appreciates the idea of taking a day off to celebrate anything to do with stingrays. Uh, with a Twitter handle at Mother of Rays, Dr. Joni Pinney Fitzsimmons loves nut- everything to do with stingrays and he's also a self-described stalker of rays in the name of science, of Ooh. course. <laughs> First up, congratulations on completing your PhD and welcome back to the show, Joni. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Uh, glad to be here. I'm so glad. You actually reached out at a time when I saw your paper myself and went, oh, we have to get Joni on to talk about it. And you're like, oh, we, I have to get on the show to talk about it. So it's quite serendipitous. <laughs> but before we get to Stingrays Making Noise, I mentioned at the start, top of the show, we were talking about Raylene, the bossy despot. For those <laughs> who missed the show, and honestly, to refresh my memory, who is Raylene and why is she a despot? So Raylene is one of the first stingrays that I ever started working with um, down in Jervis Bay on um, south coast of New South Wales. And so we um, we did a bit of a study that looked at their social behaviour. So um, I'm sure you know down in Victoria you often see big smooth stingrays around all the wharves and piers and feeding on little bits of fish scraps that the, the recreational fishers are throwing in. Um, and that's sort of the context that I do the most of my research in. And, um, you know, we spent a bit of time sitting on a wharf down in Jervis Bay, seeing these rays come in, especially Raylene coming in almost every single day. Um, And so we wanted to have a look at whether uh, there was any sort of organisation to that sort of social structure, whether there was patterns in it. And so we sat there and watched them for a little bit longer. And it turns out that our bossy boots, Raylene, was absolutely the matriarch of that group. She was the boss. Um, she had the attitude to match. And um, and all the other rays were sort of subordinate to her, which was um, really interesting. And it's it's quite exciting because that, that kind of despotic social structure is something that's usually only seen in really social species like primates and uh, wolves and things like that. So to see it in a stingray that people think is, you know, relatively solitary, doesn't really spend much time with other rays, it was really quite exciting. That's fascinating. I think now every single person listening to the show, whenever they see stingrays, are going to have that in the back of their mind and they're going to try (laughs) and work out the social structure of all the rays that they're seeing and what's going on. Look, 
again, we could talk about that all day and we have previously. So please go back and listen on demand to the interview we had with Joni um, last year. Now, on to why we have you onto the show today. You're involved in some research that provided the first evidence that stingrays produce sounds. How has this not been discovered before? <laughs> it's That was my first thought when I first saw these videos. I thought... How have I not seen this before? Like, has this been happening the whole time? Why, and, why are we only finding so out about no this now? And so there's no literature anywhere to say that. No. Well, there is now. Well, Our yes. Our is <laughs> the only one. <laughs> yes. But, yeah, there, there'd been nothing published on it in, in the primary literature. Um, had a little bit of, well, quite an extensive search of the internet to see, you know, if anyone's posted about this on any kind of other websites. And there was... There was one post by a diver um, talking about manta rays maybe producing a, um, a high-pitched sound when they were startled, but the evidence was, you know, there really wasn't a lot to go on because there wasn't any videos. It was just a description and everyone's sort of like, oh, are we sure that that's actually happened? But now we have, you know, definitive proof in not one but two species and three individuals um, actually producing sounds, which is super exciting. And how did you come across it? Um, I did hint at the start of the show that social media had something to do with it, but it's it's not all scrolling through Instagram. Is that your research now? <laughs> well, I won't admit how much time I do spend on Instagram, but it proves to be valuable. So you know, it's not wasted time. <laughs> but it all um, it all actually started back in 2018. So this this work's been four years in the making. Um, and back in 2018, our co-author Javier Delgado Esteban. He posted a video, uh, he posted some photos of juvenile mangrove whiprays off Magnetic Island in Townsville. He posted those up on the website iNaturalist. And in the caption, he put a description saying he noticed that one of these rays was producing this loud clicking sound and then proceeded to upload that video into onto YouTube, which is where our lead author on the paper and a good friend of mine, Lachlan Fetterplace, came across it. And he immediately sent it through to me, being the ray nerd that I am <laughs> and said anything like this before and I said I definitely have not um and that you know I probably watched that video a good 30 40 times trying to just figure out like am I actually seeing what I'm seeing here and yeah that's when I started looking through the internet looking through the literature I couldn't find anything about it but the the issue was that it was just one video of one animal in one specific area so there's not a lot to go on in terms of describing the behavior and publishing on it. So it did sort of end up on the back burner for a little bit. Uh, but then about six months later, I was very productively scrolling through Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> came across another video um, of an adult mangrove race, so the same species, but but in the adult, um, from uh, Philip Christoph in Indonesia. And it was this big ray definitely making these loud booming click sounds and I was like okay we're definitely onto something now we've got a juvenile and adult same species this is exciting and that that's sort of when the paper started coming together um but then it turns out that Javier had been speaking to uh Barbara Ruinga who's um part of Sharks and Rays Australia to see if she'd heard of anything like it and it turns out that um, Johnny, who works with her, uh, had another video, but in a different species. So now we've got, in, in the cowtail race, so now we've got three individuals, two different species, and our minds just sort of blew and we're like, we need to get this out immediately. And so, yeah, now it's, now it's out there and it's 
so exciting. <laughs> and now I was very excited. You actually sent through some audio of what that sounds like because I'm sure everyone at home is going, well, okay, well, what does it sound like? Now we're going to play it. Let's go. So here we, you're doing it again. <laughs> now, as you said, you've watched the audio, you've watched, sorry, the video, but you've also obviously listened to that audio a thousand times. Can you tell me what ray that was? Oh, you're testing me. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was one of the cowtail, cow yeah. Cowtail, yeah. Yes. <laughs> what are, how do they make the noise? Like, is that something you were able to deduce from the video? It's a little bit tricky. We're not entirely sure because the videos we do have, these people weren't sort of trying to film this behaviour, so you don't get it from all angles and things like that. So we're sort of relying on, on what we've got in these three videos and they're they're all sort of taken from the side so we can't see all of the bits that might go into it. But what we can tell, it looks like it's some kind of fast movement of the jaw um, and the spiracle, that's the opening behind the eyes that they use for respiration. So there's some sort of very fast movement that happens. It could be um, creating a vacuum in that sort of mouth area and then, you know, a cavitation or something um, happening there. Or it could be the jaws moving past each other or the cartilage moving past each other. We really don't know, but it is some sort of rapid movement and it produces that very sharp click sound. So I'm guessing your stingray physiology game went up a lot there because it's probably not something you're used to dealing with i'm curious as any ideas why they would make the sound Do, like is this something that um yeah they would use to maybe warn off predators or is it i don't know like do they communicate you've seen the social structures is it potentially something that's used to communicate that way or is this something we're still early days yeah well we we sort of think that it is produced as maybe a warning or a defense signal because in all three of the videos you have a, a diver or a swimmer who's you know quite big coming in close range to these rays and they they seem to be producing it while they're swimming away from them um so we think it is probably a warning to the predators like hey don't eat me um or something like that but these rays are both species are actually really social as well and you often see them in quite large groups especially as juveniles and so we do think that they might use it as uh, a form of communication with other rays that are in the area to say, there's a potential predator here, uh, just be extra vigilant. So it could play a role in, in anything like that, but we do think it's some sort of warning or defence signal against predators. And so obviously now that you have this evidence, you're going to have to do trips to Indonesia and places where you find these rays to do further research. Have you come across more since you've um, publish the paper because often what happens is like you'll get this paper out and then people are oh yeah I've got some evidence here you go is that starting to happen yet yeah it definitely is we've I've had so many messages on social media and <laughs> via email to say I think I've seen this or here's a video I took is this ray making sound so we've got um, a bunch of examples coming in now so it seems like people this is something that people have been seeing and just haven't realized that it's something we didn't know about before so there's a bit of excitement there's a lot of people going back through their old footage and, and sending it through so if you have seen it before please do send through examples because we are we are looking to collect a few more and so what's the next step for you with this research what, what's this leading on to it's obviously opened up pandora's box and you've now got three lifetimes worth of research to do what's the, what's the next small bit you plan to do yeah, well, the, yeah, as you say, there's plenty of things that we can do now. There's um, 
But one of the first steps is probably looking to record the sounds with a little bit more sophisticated equipment rather than, you know, someone's little GoPro. Um, so you can get these really specialized hydrophones that you can record the sounds with. Um, and then we can really properly classify all the different elements within each of those sounds uh, so that they can go into a database and people can pull them out of, you know, soundscapes from underwater and things like that. Um, then we probably want to be looking at behavioral responses to figure out what the exact purpose is so we can play the sounds back to individuals of the same species and see how they react we can play it back to predators see how they react and try to really nail out what that purpose is what the situations they produce that sound in because it must be pretty rare if it's something we're only just seeing now so figuring out that exact purpose i think is is really key um, and then also looking at the mechanics of it. So you can do some really cool um, studies in, in captivity where you can basically get x-rays of them when they're making the sounds and you can see how all the different cartilage and bits and pieces move and, and how that sound might be produced. So, yeah, there is plenty that we can do um, and, yeah, really keen to start getting on it and, you know, maybe a little trip to Indonesia or the Great Barrier Reef or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, look, we've got plenty of excuses to get you back on the show. You mentioned earlier if people do have that uh, footage or they have images or they have audio, where, I mean, they can get hold of you at Mother of Rays. Where else can people get hold of you and um, have a chat and share information? Yeah, but... The easiest way is probably just do a Google search for the Stingray Diaries. Um, that's what that's right. most yep. of my social media channels are. It, that's where you'll be able to find contacts for me and, and things like that. So, yeah, that's probably the best place. All right. Well, thank you so much, Joni, for jumping on the show again. And, yeah, I think At Mother of Rays just sums it all up. Um, appreciate <laughs> the work that you're doing. You've got a lot of people excited down here. And, yeah, we'll, we'll most definitely be crossing paths and getting you back on in the future. Thanks again. Absolutely. Anytime. Thanks. Which leads us nicely into the next guest. She's director, producer, theatre maker and artistic director of Reaction Theatre. She's here to tell us a huge story about the French frigate Medusa. Welcome, Louise Howard. Hi. You, uh, well, this story is, just goes on and on. When, I, when you first uh, sent this across to me, because you're going across to France to study the actual the historic moment of the Medusa Tell us about the Medusa first up. Um, yeah, so it's a very long and involved story, but basically there was a frigate that set sail from the port of Rochefort, which is on the west coast, just up from Bordeaux, and it was setting sail to take over to take back the colony of Senegal um, from the British, and then basically en route it smashed into a sandbank and. There was a, an incompetent captain who had been... <laughs> oh, the French. Um, you know, coming out of the French Revolution that was all very uh, testy at the time. So basically the incompetent captain kind of ran the ship onto a sandbank. The ship broke up. They created a raft from the wreckage and they were going to actually just tow the supplies and things to Africa, but they realised they didn't have enough lifeboats. Yeah. Uh, of course, all the rich people jumped into those lifeboats. They took off and they were going to tow the rest of the passengers um, onto uh, Africa. But, <clears throat> excuse me, of course, the um, uh, halfway or after a couple of hours, they realised that that wasn't going to work. And so they ended up, they cut the tow rope. 
cut them adrift and left about 150 people on this raft just floating out to sea. So when you say raft, it's not like I pictured, you know, Huckleberry Finn type of raft. Like <laughs> this is big well, they parts called of the it, wreckage. Yeah. yeah, they called it La Machine. It was like this massive raft. Um, but, of course, when they loaded the people onto the raft, sunk it, it sunk and it was floating sort of half in and half out of the water. Um, so, of course, it was, you know, there were people that were stuck up to their waist in water and... Um, it, the the military at the time was actually made up of ex prisoners, and so um, and they came on board with their sabers and uh, all sorts of stuff. So there was like basically a mutiny on board this raft, and of course they all started fighting after a, a day or so. It, it it erupted, and I think it was also a, a um, there was a throwback to the revolutionary times of a lot of disgruntled, you know, people. Yeah. Anyway, there was a lot of can't there was carnage and death. They were they were given no supplies either. They were given basically a couple of barrels of wine <laughs> <laughs> and some biscuit paste. Um, it all was just it was just a series of absolute you know catastrophe. It was just a series of yeah. errors that evolved into a massive catastrophe. But on this raft, I don't know whether my numbers are right. One hundred forty six mm. people mm-hmm. and one lone female. Correct. Yeah. Um, so she was a cantinière. Um, she was a sort of ran along with the soldiers and helped to acquire provisions and yeah. cooked out on the battlefield and things like that. Yeah, so she had this incredible life and ended up on this raft and uh, she, they, it took them three goes to kill her. Um, they, they tried to throw her over to, overboard three times and she kept climbing back on, but in the end she broke her hip and um, was lost to, lost to history. Is this what attracted you to the story, the lone female character? Look, actually, we didn't know about this lone female. We, we started looking at the, the, the story of the painting and mm. then in our discoveries we were like, oh, my God, there's this lone woman. No one talks about this woman. Yeah. And so we've had to sort of – we don't know a lot about her, but we've created a story um, about her life from yep. the scant details that we have. So you have been granted a residency to uh, go across to study up about this female? Yes. Yeah, so the French government, the French Ministry of Culture, have a wonderful program where they uh, work with different heritage sites all over France. And one of the places that they work with mm-hmm. is the International Centre of the Sea, so the Maritime Museums at Rochefort, because it's a big, it's a port where yep. a lot of ships have set sail from. Um, and so they ha- they have a medical um, museum there. They've also built a frigate from scratch by hand, like a proper full-size frigate. Yeah. They also have a replica raft, a full-size replica raft of the Medusa um, that they have actually floated. They've taken it out on the sea and floated it to see what the how this all worked. Um, they've also got all the historical records of the ship um, and so it's a chance for me to speak with historians and to find out a bit more about this and also about the medical um, effects of being out at sea for such a period of time with absolutely no um, protection. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah. And you are going to put this into a theatre production? Yes, yeah, so we've been... How? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's a, it's a very... Someone said the other day, there is no destination, it's all journey, and I feel like, yes, it's this is, this has been my life. Um, so basically we, um, we are um, creating a 
show that uses 3D projection mapping. Yeah. To, so the, there was a painting that was created, yes. which is, of course, a whole... Um, we would never have known about really about this um, except for the tragedy. Well, no, the, except that they were discovered. These people. Uh-huh. So there was. Yeah, How many were discovered? Only fifteen after after thirteen days. Whoa. Yeah, thirteen days. They killed yeah. that many people in thirteen. Oh my god, those they, French are so efficient. Oh yes, <laughs> <laughs> they they murdered. They resorted to cannibalism. Oh, that was just thirteen days. Yeah, and the cannibalism ha- apparently happened Day quite. Two? Yeah. Yes. Actually. <laughs> yeah. They they were starving, and uh, well, they were they well, they just became murderers. So um, after thirteen days, they uh, yeah they discovered about fifteen people on this. Oh, wow. And 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 so that story would have never been told except for the fact that they were discovered. There was a book that was written, and a young artist called Jericho Jericho who actually decided to bear witness to this tragedy yeah. um, and painted this enormous painting that hangs in the Louvre um, that you can go see. Wow. Because it, it hit the international. It was a, a scandal, wasn't it, internationally? An absolute scandal. Changed, changed the course of history. Um, it's a testament that art can actually really um, influence um, the, the, course the course of, of history. history yeah. um, and... We've, so we've decided to create a, a, a story around this of a young Australian um, person who goes to the Louvre. She's not interested in anything there, but through basically we bring the painting alive through 3D projection mapping. Okay. Um, and so we've been working on that um, for the last few years and working with RMIT um, with the MAGI um, students from the MAGI course which is the Masters of Gaming and Interactivity to bring the painting alive to yeah. to use projection to tell the story of the woman on the raft and to um, to engage young audiences in a in a way um, that's maybe a little bit different to what other pieces of theatre yeah. that they might have seen. Oh, yeah, well and truly. Because as you said, you, I guess you're not having 146 people on stage at once and slowly <laughs> getting rid of them, no. <laughs> <laughs> Brett, that's, I think you should make that. <laughs> yeah. Perhaps I could create the prop, you know. <laughs> uh, no, we're not, we're not, we didn't want to do that. No, we didn't I think so that was. I am so linear, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, no, it's um, it 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 tries it it's telling that story of that woman, yep. and and through that the so the sort of the history of uh, I suppose it's a universal story because mm. it's about people finding their way through life, ending up in a situation that they never anticipated, and having everything ripped away yeah. from them. And how we deal with that loss, it's a you know? Yeah. Mm. Um. How did the uh, French government uh, kind of, well, grant you this uh, residency? Yeah. Well, I mean, I suppose they probably found it quite odd that a woman from, from Australia, Australia is writing about <laughs> such an incredible um, story. But it, it is part of. I mean, a lot of French people know this painting. It's yeah. a really iconic painting for French people because, of course, their whole you know, motto for for their country is about liberty, fraternity, yeah. and um, freedom. It's you such know, such a dark, dark painting, though. Yeah, it is. It is. But it was designed to shock, and and I think you know, at the time we remember there was no film, there was no yeah. Instagram, and so this was our only way of 
bearing witness to a disaster is to actually have to paint it and to put it in front yeah. of people and shock people and go, this can't happen again. Ah, what you've done yes. here is is disgusting and you need to be held responsible yeah, for that. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you haven't seen the painting, jump onto the uh, Radio Marinara Facebook page because uh, it's posted there on our uh, page there. So uh, just to give you an idea of the darkness. Yeah. And of or that, buy and the Pogues album. Oh, yeah, or just <laughs> yeah. go out to the Pogues. Rum, sodomy and the lashes, yeah. So, again, that's kind of seeped into uh, pop culture there too. So it's quite yeah. amazing. Um, well, you know, it does It does continue to, to pop up, especially when there's been influx of refugees, um, uh, yeah. people taking to very leaky boats and yep. rafts and anything that they can to escape war. The image again re- repeats and reverberates. And so, you know, artists such as Banksy have done um, their interpretation. Okay. Greg Semu, who's a, um, who's from Samoa, who's a, a photographer, he's done a whole series of photos. Um, I mean, it's just, it's it's a very um, striking, I think, yeah. piece of art. Yeah. That, that kind of just gets under your skin as yeah. soon as you start studying it. Wow. So uh, how long in the making will this theatre production be? Uh, this is the the, uh, the how long is a piece of string yeah. question. I mean, we're, <laughs> we're always applying for funding. We've, we've been very lucky to secure funding for, um, you know, the stages of development. Yep. We currently have a, um, a philanthropic um, a donor, donor as well, um, but we're always obviously applying for for more and um, you know we would love to be able to um, you know finish the work within the year it's um, it's obviously a long and complex work it's um, it's not an easy work to make it's it involves a lot of technical knowledge I'm not the technical person (laughs) I'm the director but I have a lot of very competent people around me who can do that stuff fantastic so hopefully you yeah when it's out you'll keep us out yeah drop us a line oh definitely because uh, not only that it's, it's it's got everything, hasn't it? You know, the lone bit of feminism. Yes. It's the history, yes. the the French, the crazy French. So <laughs> yeah. it's going to be. So yeah. So hopefully, stay in touch with us and uh, let us know when there's actually, or even because you'll have a few uh, test uh, showings. Yeah. Or... Look, we're we're going into our next creative development. We hope to kind of. We hope to finish the last few scenes. Yeah. One of which is the ship is breaking up. Let's see how we do that. I don't know. We've all got to sit down and work that out. Um, and looking at um, then doing a prototype performance. Fantastic. All right, Louise, thank you so much for popping in and telling us that because, as I said, it is a huge story and I've got no idea how you're going to compress it onto a stage. Oh, thank you for having me. Uh, okay, then. That's Louise Howlett there. We'll... Uh, Keep in touch with Louise and let you know when that production's coming to stay. Yeah, I think that sounds like a marinara field trip. That one to go and see that, and oh, then could we? do a, do, a, do a review, do a review, get Louise Absolutely. back, do a review, and sort of talk about it. I think that would be fantastic. It is nine forty-five, and you are listening to Three Triple R on one hundred two point seven. Uh, multiple ways you can listen to us, and the show you're listening to is Radio Marinara, a show about all things wet and salty. Our next guest is one amazing person from the Antarctic to the deep sea. There are not too many places where Dr. Nerida Wilson has not been in search of genetic material. Nerida is an invertebrate molecular biologist at the Western Australian Museum who loves all the weird and wonderful critters <laughs> often overlooked and understudied. Welcome to Radio Marinara, Nerida. Thank you so much. You do like the weird and wonderful, don't you? 
I, I do. <laughs> it's a predilection. <laughs> well, she's on Radio Marinara, so of course. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I mentioned in the sort of lead up that you've basically been in the search of genetic material, but what does a marine molecular biologist do? Yeah, so I guess it's just a, a slightly extra um, part of work. Most marine biologists are interested in answering questions. And the way that I do that is to use genetic tools to help me answer questions. So not all that different, just a little bit about what I do. Yeah, and so we, we won't go into the genetic tools um, because that could be a whole another interview. And I, I do actually have to say thank you for getting up at um, 7.45 um, WA time to join us on Marinara. It is appreciated when we get Western Australia guests on. It's usually just during the winter when it's a two-hour as opposed to a three-hour difference. Um, now, we've got you on the show to talk about all things sea dragons. Um, how did your love affair with sea dragons begin? Well, I have to confess that it wasn't one of those love at first sight kind of things. So I, I know. I, I always feel really bad about that because they're obviously amazing animals. Um, but I, I actually was born with a love for mollusks and nudibranchs in particular. And so I probably pushed sea dragons out of the way to find nudibranchs <laughs> for a long time. <laughs> uh, and it was, it was actually genetics that um, brought me back to sea dragons, I suppose. Um, once I started using those tools, I got interested then to think, oh, well, what do we know about sea dragons then? And was shocked to find at that point in time we had no genetic information about sea dragons whatsoever. So I decided to fix that and along the way fell in love myself. <laughs> Could we have a description of a sea dragon? Because my imagination's <laughs> yes, gone wild. Yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh, they're lovely creatures. If you kind of imagine a seahorse, because most people have a, a picture of what they might look like, yeah. and imagine it leaning forward a bit so it swims more forward like a normal fish. But it has these wonderful leafy and weedy appendages coming off ah, it that yes. help camouflage it. So, yeah, they're really, really fantastic at blending in with their environment. Really hard to find. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that they are. And um, I guess one of the things that I was going to ask you about is you've done all that genetic work. What did you actually find out about weedy sea dragon um, genetics? Yeah. Yeah, so that's still a journey because it's it's ongoing work, but um, we're basically trying to work out exactly where genetic barriers are, and that sounds weird, but if you imagine, um, we're trying to figure out how many immigrants might move from one population to another, so how much gene flow occurs along the coastline, and that's really important for understanding how conservation strategies need to be implemented. So if, if populations are totally separate from all of the other ones, they need to be managed just by themselves as a separate thing. So, yeah, we're still, we're still going down that path, but it does look like that they don't move around too much, so we might need to look at different ways of managing them. And when you say along the coastline, where exactly, I guess, are they found? Yeah, that's a really great point. So you can see them all around the world in public aquaria. But they're in <laughs> the can. wild. They love them in the States, yeah. don't they? They do. They love them everywhere, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's always a, a shock, I think, to people that they are only found in Australia and they're only found along the southern coastline. So the weedy or common sea dragon is found from sort of just past 
Perth, a bit north of Perth, all the way along that southern coastline, around Tasmania, and then up the coastline to just past Sydney. So it's still quite a long way, but it is just the southern coast of Australia. And the leafy sea dragon has an even more restricted population, uh, sort of mostly around um, Western Australia and South Australia. And there is a third sea dragon, and I believe you were involved in discovering it. How did that happen? Yeah, that that's a, is a crazy story all on its own. So, yeah, the two that we talked about were uh, ones that uh, live in shallow water and might be encountered by divers and snorkelers. But the, the third sea dragon, the weedy sea dragon, we think it eluded us for so long because it lives in deeper water. And so... Um, yeah, we basically discovered that uh, living in about 50 metres or more, we think. <laughs> uh, we've only seen them live once. So, um, yeah, it's still lots to learn about the ruby sea dragon. But they are red, which is why we <laughs> call them the ruby sea dragon. <laughs> and so the specimens you have, are they, like, did they come up in fishing nets? Or like, how did you, you know, discover that there was this whole new species sort of there under our, and our, nose, our noses? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so there was one specimen that um, came up in a scientific net at all um, and was put in the collection of the Western Australian Museum and all of the other specimens that we have have been um, essentially washed up on the beach. Uh, there might be two others in a collection in Tasmania uh, from, from Perth, but um, yeah, we don't have that many specimens still and so most, we get very excited when a fresh one washes up. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, yeah, so we only really have the one specimen that we've been able to get genetic information out of so far, and that's, that's actually how we discovered it. We, we had a sample, we thought of a, a shallow water weedy sea dragon, and when we sequenced it, the data looked incredibly different, and I thought, what the heck is this? <laughs> what is this thing doing in my data set? <laughs> and it, it turns out to be a, a whole new species, which is just amazing. Now, I think I've told a few people this about the new species, and I'm sure the listeners at home are probably a bit amazed. They're like, holy hell, there's a whole new species that I wasn't aware of. Do you have a favourite? A favourite species? Yes, a favourite species. I know where your favourite dragon, dragon is. Of dragon or anything? Any, oh, no, let's, let's just stick with the dragons today. <laughs> oh, look... I it sounds strange, but probably the weedy or common sea dragon is actually my favourite. Yeah, the, the one that there's the most of. But they're just, I don't know, it was the first species that I saw and I just, I think they're just fascinating animals. They're just incredible. You should, if you don't know what they look like, you should Google them immediately. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, you certainly should. Uh, we, I did put a picture of a weedy sea dragon. Um, in fact, it was one called, that I named after my son, called Zeke. And... Um, oh. Yeah, I, he was actually recited yesterday, but I'll get into that in a minute. Um, you're heading up a project called Sea Dragon Search. What is Sea Dragon Search? Yes, it is It is a wonderful project, if I do say so myself. I'm very excited about it. <laughs> it's, um, basically, we're trying to you know, better understand sea dragons. We don't have a lot of the information we need to conserve them and manage them properly. So this particular project... Um, uses the fact that most sea dragons have a unique um, pattern, either of spots or stripes, on their faces and bodies. So it's sort of like a digital fingerprint if you take a photograph that is a unique dragon, and those spots don't change. So over time, if you have different photographs of that same dragon, you can actually match those spots together. Uh, you know, using that technique, you can kind of 
say, well, here's a photo of that animal this year. Two years later, here's a photo of the same animal. And so you can build up a timeline of individual sea dragons. So if, so it's sea, yeah, so if a sea dragon walked into Harvey Norman or something, it would be tracked, is that what you're saying? <laughs> <All the> facial <laughs> recognition. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That is exactly what it is, but it's using the technology for good. Yeah. <laughs> and you wouldn't walk into Harvey Norman anyway. No. <laughs> if you're a sea dragon, probably not. No, no, no. <laughs> and, and this is basically across its range too, isn't it? So a lot of these projects often happen in small areas. You've gone big, you've gone ambitious, you've gone across, you know, the Great Southern Reef, the range where it's found, and you've also got, you're planning, well, at least 10 years, although after just having a chat with you the other day, it, this may go on forever. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> you, I hope so. Yeah, so are you starting yeah. to get data in from across the country? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. The, the, one of the reasons we wanted to carry out this project is because there were lots of disparate projects happening and no way to compare that data in, against sort of environmental layers as well. So this particular project applies a standard methodology across the whole range um, and, and, as you say, scales up um, across, you know, hundreds and hundreds of, of different individual animals. So it's quite a, a large undertaking. But the way that we're able to do this is by, yes, employing those um, machine learning and artificial intelligence tools that allow us to make that sort of comparison across thousands of photographs, tens of thousands of photographs. So it's obviously too many comparisons for one scientist to do. So yes. um, it's, it's wonderful to, to be able to use those kinds of tools to make it a manageable um, project to do. So we... Um, we picked 10 years because we thought that might be roughly how long sea dragons live. But, um, yeah, it looks like we might have to go for a bit longer so far. Well, you can tell us why we might have to go a bit longer. Because, mate, I was going to say, have you got any cool results? And this leads on to your favourite sea dragon, doesn't it? It does. Yes. Can you tell us a little <laughs> bit about <laughs> Yeah, so one one particular sea dragon that has uh, come to be the star of the show is the longest-lived sea dragon in the project. So uh, his name is Speedy, and he lives in Tasmania. Um, and <laughs> he obviously is not too fast because we get lots of photos of him. <laughs> <laughs> But um, we have we have images from Speedy over fifteen years. Wow! Um, and. It's, yeah, which is astonishing, right? We had no idea that they lived no. that long. What did we think um, before Speedy? Yeah. Well, there were a couple of studies that had made estimates of maybe eight, maybe ten years, but they were sort of estimates. They weren't wow. real data anyway. So, um, yeah, he's already... Yeah, Speedy's blown our mind already, and uh, we have to remember that he wasn't a juvenile when we first encountered him as well, and he's still out there now in the wild living so yeah we've still got a lot to learn from speedy and from from all of the other dragons and we don't know if they live the same age in all different places in australia it could be that cold water areas they live a bit longer and maybe in the warmer water areas they have a shorter lifespan these are all the kinds of things we really need to know that that's fantastic and just the fact that yeah the prior knowledge it's almost doubled how long we think they live for that's incredible now basically this work yeah. is a lot of this work is being done by recreational divers who are taking photos and submitting photos to sea dragon search how can people get involved 
Yeah, absolutely. The, the key part of this project is that it's run essentially driven by people power. Um, so anyone who takes a photo of a sea dragon, you can take one photograph and participate in the project, or you can go every weekend and uh, and participate. Um, <laughs> Sorry, we're getting the wow. wind up there, as you can probably tell, and I can tell that it's just thrown you out a little bit. Uh, yeah. Sea Dragon Search and follow the links on how to participate and get your images up there. I just want to give a shout-out to all the people that have helped. There's a huge amount of them, particularly from Victoria and often listeners of this show. I'm so sorry, Narita, that we have to go and we're going to cut off midstream, basically. Uh, we will get you back on. We will, I definitely want to know if there's a speedy in Victoria. Well, Thank it's going to be much. longer than 10 years, isn't it? Yes. So, yes. <laughs> <laughs> no. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. Thank you. Look, thank you to Joni Pinney Fitzsimmons, Louise Howlett, Nerida Wilson, and Rachel for panelling. Next week, we've got Anthony Fom on the show talking UN World Ocean Conference, coral adaptation using genetics, and much more. And thank you, Cabin Boy. We are out of here. We are. Enjoy your Sunday. <laughs> Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.